I'm Darren Garrity, and you're listening to The Laughs of Your Life, the podcast where I talk to influential people about laughter. From their first memories of laughter to their no laughing matter moments to a time where they felt laughed at. But like I say, the media can do what they like with you. They can put you up, they can put you down, they can laugh at you, they can ridicule you. But to be honest with you, when it comes to me with them, I really don't give a top me damn about what they say or what they do. Because once I feel I'm doing the right thing and once I feel I'm working, maybe a lot of them might take a leaf out of the book. And if they put the same effort into their jobs that I put into my jobs, they might be better at their jobs than what they actually are. TD and proud Kerry man, Michael Healy Ray is my guest this week. He talks to me about how he never let dyslexia get in his way, his four narrow escapes with death, and his many jobs outside of politics. This season of the Laughs of Your Life podcast is brought to you by Aussie Hair. If you follow me on social media, you will know that my hair has been living its best life in lockdown, thanks to Aussie Hair products. Their three-minute miracle is a true hero. It deep treats your hair in, well, you've guessed it three minutes. I'm delighted to have Aussie sponsoring the podcast because they're not ones to take things too seriously, just like me. You can check them out on Instagram at Aussie Hair and while you're on Instagram, have a little look at my IGTV video about how I curl my hair using their products. You'll be ready for the real world and socialising before you know it. And now for my chat with Michael Healy Ray. I hope you enjoy. Michael Healy Ray, you are extremely welcome to the laughs of your life. Thank you, Darren, and I appreciate very much the opportunity. Um, I have to admit now, honesty is the best policy. I don't follow this very much myself, but all of my family do, so I hear a lot about you. And in particularly, I have sons that are mad about you, but that's a story for a different time. Yeah. Is Kevin is it Kevin that's your eldest or youngest? Kevin is the youngest and Kevin in particular said, Oh God, he said, Will you tell Darren that I said hello? And his eyes were about you know the size of you know the the, the old um, pound the kind. Do you remember it was a massive big thing like when he was saying this. So anyway, you can figure that out yourself. Yeah, Kevin has tweeted me a few times. I knew he was a fan, all right. So I said, mm-hmm. look, if they if, if they could get into your ear, they might convince you to do that. But you didn't take a whole lot of convincing to do it. So thank you for no taking problem. for taking the time. Now, are you on any are you on Easter holidays now or are you at, are you working away? I'm sure you're working well, away. Well, we're we're inside in the office there, and to be honest, it is very, very busy. I left my mobile phone after me there. So um otherwise it would be just going like a boomerang. But anyway, that's fine. Okay. The day the phone stops ringing, it's very serious because it means people either don't like you anymore or they feel you're irrelevant or else you're actually after dying so <laughs> it's good to have the phone ringing like okay will we start into this you're good to go no problem no problem michael your first memory of laughter well i i i have lots of stories but, but one thing that sticks in my head about a first right having a right good laugh i am um, i was cycling a bicycle and i was not too far away from my own house and um I remember what actually happened. I, I met, you know, these real cyclists that you meet now with their togs and their bike with their gears and their short trousers and their lycra and their everything. And they were sort of scarce at that time. Like this would be a long time ago. And, uh, but there was this real cyclist and he was in trouble with his bike. So I stopped talking to him and uh, he said, um, is there any bicycle shop? So nearby and I said there is there's a real good bicycle shop I said very nearby so um he, he I gave him the directions and uh, he 
uh, took off cycling to the bicycle shop, but I took off in, in front of him. And uh, the directions I had given him was actually to my own house. And uh, to the side of my house, there was a shed with a pit inside and it was like, a, you know, a garage like. And uh, my, my late father used to use it for repairing uh, tractors and machinery and things. So I had a couple of bicycles inside in the shed. So when I opened the doors, I took out the bicycles, turned them upside down as if they were being worked on outside in the yard. And there I was waiting with a smile on my face when this man came up the yard with his broken down bicycle with the gears in trouble. Now, remember, I had never seen a bicycle with gears in my life before that. And... Um, uh, I was, you know, dreading this operation, like, and uh, he said, oh, he said, is this the bicycle shop? And I said, well, sure it is. Yeah, didn't I give you the directions? But when I was giving him the directions, I'd never told him that I was actually going to be his bicycle, bicycle mechanic for the day. So I duly fell in at the gears. And like, you must think about this now. I'd say I was nine or 10 at the time. But believe it or not, anyway, I got the bicycle going. So the model of the story was when he was going down the yard, uh, he said to me, he said, oh, I'll, I must give you something. And he gave me some couple of pounds or whatever. And sure, he was delighted. I was delighted. And when he was gone, I thought I had a right good laugh to myself that, well, that's one way of making a couple of bob anyway, <laughs> you know, by talking up and, you know. So it, it, it's a model in life. You have to talk up to get up and get out, you know. Talk to me about your childhood, Michael. Was it a happy time? Do you remember running through fields or were you put to work or, you know, and how were you in school? Well, I wouldn't have been great at school now. I had a bit of a problem. And I suppose I, 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 I do remember that one of the things you, you asked was, um, you know, could a person remember being laughed at? Now, I wouldn't like to say that people were unkind to me or anything, but I did have a little bit of a problem when I was going to school, which was, a, you know, it's a small little bit of a holdback. I couldn't read or write. Now, when I say I couldn't read or write, I really mean I couldn't read or write. And we'll say when I was like eight, nine, ten, eleven, uh, even going on twelve, I'd say I couldn't read or write, and um, I couldn't write my own name. Now that is a bit of a, a, a handicap, like. And uh, whereas now children are diagnosed with different problems early in life and all that, but um, it became apparent that I did have a bad problem. But the problem in it, to cut a long story short, was I was profoundly dyslexic. Now how it was started was. Um, there was a very nice nun in Killarney. Her name was Sister Regina. And my mother took me to Sister Regina and she taught me. Uh, she was a young nun uh, starting out herself. And um, she went on to become a mother superior and she's still with us, thanks be to God. A great woman altogether. She went off on the foreign missions and all these sort of things. But one of the things she did in life anyway was she turned my head around. I remember what she said to me the first day after doing a big long talk with me. She said, your head is good. She said, your head is fine. She said, and there is a brain inside there. But she said, it's like this. She said, your head is all locked up with little padlocks. And she said, I have to cut a key and make a key for every lock. And when I finish off opening up all these locks, you'll be amazed at what we're going to find. Now, one thing that I found in life is that uh, when I deal with parents who have um, children that have uh, dyslexia and other types of learning difficulties, I like meeting them, uh, the, the children, because mm -hmm. I like talking to them and I like uh, explaining to them that they don't really have a, a, a disability. What they have is an ability because the ability is, especially with dyslexia, anyway, the, the more profoundly dyslexic you are, you can actually turn things around inside in your head. 
and your brain actually functions differently to what I would call a normal intelligent person right and of course you could say oh well isn't it an awful thing like not to be able to like there was a sign up over my father's bar and his name was up on it and like I could never read it and like some people say to well dyslexia is the the, the words all turned over backwards in other words yeah. really, but if you're really confused what it works we'll just say take for instance Ray R-A-E well it mightn't be E-A-R it could be A-R-E do you know yes. and, or it could be the other way around yeah. It could be E and it could be R and it could be A. So like it could be all mumbo jumbo, which is very confusing. And every time you look at it, it could be something different. So your head really has to be working to try and keep on top of the situation. So a, were people laughing at me because of that? I wouldn't like to say that. But I mean, you can't blame young people for thinking, well, so-and-so is inside in the class and he's a bit slow, you know? Yeah. And um I always remember one time I brought um, a foreign ambassador visiting a school and the ambassador was a very nice, kind man and it was a school in County Kerry. And he said that he had brought a couple of little treats for children, but he was going to ask questions and whoever would answer the questions would get the little treat. So he asked a couple of what we call simple questions, easy questions to answer. And there was this one student kept putting up his hand, but kept having the answer. And at the same time, then the ambassador started asking more awkward questions and harder questions. And this young man kept putting up his hand and kept answering correctly. Now, the one thing that I'll say to you is when we were finished out of the whole class, that young boy was the only person who had an SNA, a special needs assistant, sitting alongside him. Mm. So that child was the child of the class that we'll call it had special education requirements. Yeah. But at the same time, I actually asked his SNA afterwards. I said, would you tell me the story with this young boy? I said, He's, you know, he was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And she said, well, this is the way his mind works. He needs assistance every day doing the simple, basic uh, things in life. Perhaps maybe, you know, making sure to have his lunch, making sure to go to the bathroom on time, things like that. But with regard to his brain, his brain was the best brain inside in the class. But at the same time, he was the boy who needed somebody with him to assist him. Think about how queer that is in your head, do you know? know. So what I'm trying to say is parents of people who have special requirements and things like that, and most importantly, the people themselves, if you think there's something wrong with you, for God's sake, there might be absolutely nothing in the world wrong with you, (laughs) only that your head is operating at a different level to everybody else's. It's so true. It's It's such a spectrum of... You know, what we think is classic intelligence, it can just be so different for everyone. And my, my mom would often say it like, you know, you, you'd know of of students who maybe got 600 points in their leaving cert, but they couldn't, not even not not even that they couldn't fry an egg, but just common sense doesn't come into play or or cop on doesn't come into play. And so we all just have to, to play to our strengths, which I'm sure you have done. And, and as you say, your, your brain might be wired different, differently, but it is an ability to navigate your way through life mm-hmm. with that. Oh, definitely. And like I say, don't ever look at the negative in anything like I always have to twist it around and say, is there a positive in it? Um, one of the most, um, uh, what I call it, ironic things I ever had. And I'll, I have to be very careful about talking about things like this because I don't want people to not to, to say, oh, God, he was talking about me on the radio. But there was this very, very intelligent man that I knew. And um, he was explaining to me one day, he, he wrote um, very deep books and things like that, like, if the rest of our heads are operating here, this man's head is like, you know, there's a very 
close line between insanity and genius, well, this person would be bartering on both. But he, <laughs> he, he, he was on a plane one day and uh, something went wrong with the plane and uh, the plane was going to crash. True story. And he was explaining in great detail like that he was gripping on and everybody was roaring and screaming and there was things falling around in the plane. It was one of these small planes, you know, maybe with 12 people on it or something like that. And uh, he was like, he was literally getting ready to die. And there was people roaring to Holy Mary, Mother God, pray for us, uh, forgive me my sins. And they were all, you know, they were in the last seconds. And this man was terrified as well. And then at the last minute, he started to think, hold on, this is going to be an exhilarating experience. I'm actually going to die. I'm going to experience death in a plane crash. Do you know what are the odds of this? <laughs> no, he swore to me that he was actually looking forward to the moment of death, that it, to see what it was like, that it was going to be the ultimate experience. And here he was like, and he did serious, telling me this story. And you know, I actually believe him that he was. And at the last minute, to make a long story short, something happened. The plane leveled out and they were all saved. And he actually came off the plane afterwards, disappointed that he missed out on the experience <laughs> of dying. So my answer to him was, well, look, sure, who knows? You, you'll get that experience at some other time because it is inevitable you will die. But it was just a funny way of looking at things. Yeah. You know? yeah. So some people have a different way of looking at things. Even the most ultimate negative could be turned into a positive, potentially. Okay, Michael Healy Ray, your first time you felt laughed at. Well, I suppose that I've answered that in that uh, maybe going to school yes. that uh, people might have, you know, looked at me at being a bit different. And, um, and and it isn't that they were nasty laughing at me, but I mean, you know, it is a major handicap. Like, and I used to turn it around and try to make fun out of it. In other yeah. words, try to make fun out of myself. Because remember, if you laugh at yourself, uh, you don't feel bad about other people joining the queue and laughing at you as well. So I suppose maybe that might be the answer to that. And how did you find it? Like in your family, were there other dyslexic people in your family or was it just no, you? No, no. But I used to always say they all had a brain except me. <laughs> and did, would they have laughed at you or would they have been, you know, because siblings, of course, like you are, you're mean to each other and you do laugh at, at each other over things like that. Or would, uh, they no. have had, would they have had your back? Ah, uh, they would have had, yeah, in fairness. No, they wouldn't have been like that. And they'd have been, um, we'll say, understanding to the situation and to the difficulties at hand. You know, it was just one of these problems to be dealt with. And obviously, you know, the outlook you have now on that and looking back and, and hindsight's a great thing. And and you do what you can now to help other people and families yes. who, who maybe have. But but at the time, obviously, it would have been tough for you. Did you what were the kind of avenues you used to maybe feel better about yourself? Were there strengths that you then found you had that were outside of the classroom that were maybe on, you know, playing sport or art or whatever it might have been? Or was it or was it politics? Were you were you a politician from a young age? No, I suppose the one thing that I always very, very much enjoyed was working. And like I, I, I always liked every type of work. And no matter how, you know, we'll say, say menial a type of a job, if we were to call it that way, I got great pleasure out of working. And even from a very young age, like I, I, I enjoyed um, just grafting and uh, ordinary just doing jobs, you know. And um, I suppose maybe if, if you were, if you wanted to be more an academic person, it might obviously more be more of a worry to you. But again, I believe everybody has their strengths. And using your head about work and work ethic, I think is good if you're not an academic person. I suppose the way my life evolved then, um, we'll say the whole world of uh, education 
might have come into a degree. But for example, I didn't do my leaving cert. I did my inter cert. Um, but like the reason I didn't do my leaving cert, and God, I shouldn't be saying this because I obviously encourage everybody to do their leaving. I encourage everybody, for God's sake, go to college, get every education you can. But like, I'm only speaking about myself. So I'm not saying this as a model to other students. Uh, I considered it an awful waste of time because I had better things to be doing with my time at the time rather than doing a leaving cert to get this little piece of paper that was going to be of no use whatsoever to me. So I did do another type of uh, academia uh, in that um, I said there was one piece of paper I needed and, uh, and I said I'd go away and get that. Uh, rather than getting the leaving cert. And that was, I went to the Salesian Brothers in Palaskinnery for a year to an agricultural college because I wanted to get um, the national certificate in agriculture because that's your green cert. It's like your passport for farming and all that sort of thing. So I said, well, I'm going to do that. And rather than, God, and again, I'm sorry for using this word, <laughs> waste my year doing my leaving cert, I was going to put my year to good use getting my green cert. So, but I have the utmost respect for the leaving cert process, of course. I know, but but you know what? No, it is, it's it's worth talking about though, because it is it is such an ingrained thing in our brains that you are, you should do this. You should, your guidance counselor tells you this in school. No, don't do that thing because you mightn't get a job. Like there are so many people who do you know, maybe they get into college, they do first year, they might do second year, but then they realize there's just no point. It's not for them. Their strengths aren't in that. Like even my own boyfriend, he, he has a degree from UCD and he goes, he, he looks back now, he's 28 and he looks back now and he's like, I would have been so much better to do, you know, um, carpentry or whatever it might be, like something that wasn't a proper, you know, Yes. In UCD, like he sh- and, and you're not really encouraged. Well, you see, Darren, this is not a practice run, right? So yeah. your life is very short. It's like the fellow, your man that's 28, um, like he will not be 28 again, you know? So he should be doing what he wants to do, not what the world wants him to do, not what everybody expects of him to do. He should be doing what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, in whatever way he wants to do it. And everyone in the world should be doing the same to the best of their ability. We've we've talked about your the first time you felt laughed at, but I want I I want to ask you about feeling laughed at in in politics and if that has ever become a thing for you because you have such staunch supporters for for so many different reasons, but there there's always going to be that kind of level of oh he's the lad that wears the hat in the doll and and he says things that 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 make people laugh and that grasp headlines. How do you feel about it? Yes. Well, you see, I'll give you examples. Um, it's amazing the way people can laugh at a person, and then if if they're proved right, they don't uh, they don't give them the credit for it. Um, we'll say the SIMI, the Society of Irish Motor in the Industry. They're a great group of people. There was one difficulty in Irish car industry, and that was in January. Everybody um, wants the new number plate if they can afford it, if they can finance a car. So the SIMI were talking to me about, um, could we have two stats to a year, right? And um, so I really thought, this is a great idea, so that you could have two new cars in the year. In other words, uh, that six months on, there'd be another. So like, in, in if you can re- remember, it started back in the year to, uh, 13, 2013, yes. Yeah. So I stood up inside the doll and I made a case for the two stats to the year. And um, now one thing that I did, I was raised in the doll. And when I raised in the doll, 
the media, certain elements of them were laughing at me and saying, ridiculous. Do you know what's really wrong with him now? He's afraid of the number 13 and he thinks that having a car will say with 13 KY is wrong. So he wants it to be 131 or 132 KY to take away the figure 13. Now, that wasn't the reason. Now, one thing that the media didn't know then, I raised in the doll, I raised with the minister at the time, but I went to the department then. And I kept lobbying and lobbying and lobbying and making the case on behalf of the SIMI and others. And the garages, for instance, we have in Kerry, I wanted to make this, to, to try it. And like what I kept saying at the time was if we try it and if it's a failure, forget about it and we'll drop it, right? So eventually they agreed and it happened. Now, I never saw the media that were laughing at me turning around and saying, well, every car now in the country has a different registration. And this is going to be tried. And the reason it's happening is because of Michael Healy Ray. Not at all. There was no, it was, oh, the department have decided. The department decided because they had a lobbyist really pushing on behalf of the industry and saying, well, this should be tried. And I, the only reason I wanted it was to see would it increase car sales, ensure that our jobs, the people working in the garages, the salesmen, the servicemen, all the people, and that would keep our figures up. But like I say, the media can do what they like with you. They can put you up, they can put you down, they can laugh at you, they can ridicule you. But to be honest with you, when it comes to me with them, I really don't give a top me damn about what they say or what they do. Because once I feel I'm doing the right thing, and once I feel I'm working, maybe a lot of them might take a leaf out of the book. And if they put the same effort into their jobs that I put into my jobs, they might be better at their jobs than what they actually are. <laughs> there you go. Plain as day. Plain as day. Okay, Michael Ray, the moment when if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Well, the funny thing about it, there's a very good friend of mine, Dan Casey is his name. Now, myself and Dan worked together in a forestry, right? Now, our job was uh, pinning timber. And um, it, it, I'll have to tell you the context. We were working in a forestry, which was very high up, very, very, very open, exposed, high ground. And there was a forestry there, and we actually had a horse drawing out the timber. The horse's name was Billy, by the name, in case it's of any importance. But we had a Ford Capri car for going to work. But the weather was real bad, very snowy, very frosty weather. And one morning, we were going to work, and we went around this bridge, and there was a big hill up in front of us, and the car wouldn't go anymore because the, the road was too slippy. And we just couldn't. We tried turning around and seeing, could we back up? And no, we failed to back up. So it was a failure. And we wanted to go to work. We weren't going to miss our day's work. So you see, we had a good bit of stuff because each one of us will say we would do a chainsaw, your two-stroke, your, uh, your oil for the chain, your couple of bits of tools, your lunch bag, your bits and pieces. So we had fish boxes inside in the car, thrown inside in the car. The car was like a van, if you know what I mean, every type of thing in the world inside in it. So we loaded up our two boxes and we got a rope out of the car and we tied it around our waist and left, the, you see, the road was so slippy, it was like a sheet of glass. So we started walking up the road with our boxes dragging behind us and we heading up to the forest to go to work. So this was the start of the morning in the black coal morning, the, what we would call the height of misery and misfortune and <laughs> manual labor and penal suffering. And here we were going up the road and you see every so often then you, your legs would be going from under you 
And so you were trying to walk on the verge of the road a bit, but keep the box out on the road itself where it would slide a bit better. And every so often then you'd go down and land on the ground and do you know into the cold ice and snow that was on the side of the road. And I looked around me and I was thinking to myself, this is the height of misery and misfortune. <laughs> and then I actually started laughing. And Dan said to me, why in the name of Christ are you laughing? He said, what's so funny about this? Well, I said, Dan, look, it's as simple as this. This is one of these moments I said, it's better off to laugh than cry because I said, if I'm not going to cry I, or if I'm not going to laugh, I think I actually will cry. So he said, well, fine, laugh away. So if you think it's funny and he didn't think it was one bit funny. But anyway, that was one of those moments that if I didn't laugh, I would have had to cry. And if you didn't go into politics full time, what do you think you would be doing right now? Right now, this minute, I'd be up on a, on a machine somewhere. <laughs> That's exactly what I'd be, on a track machine. That's what I'd be doing this minute. And I'd be quite happy because no matter what I'd ever be put at, I'd be quite happy. I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity to work in politics and to be a representative of people, which I take very, very seriously. But whatever function or role I'd have, if I was outside sweeping the street with Kerry County Council, or if I was driving a, a, a truck, or if I was driving a digger, or if I was driving something, I'd be quite happy whatever I'd be at. Or if I was serving people inside my shop, I, I'm just very happy going looking like that. And once I'm busy, I don't care what I'm at. Once I'm C busy. Contentment is what my dad always says to me. Don't be always striving for happiness. It's great to be happy, but being content is more important. Oh, for God's sake, yes. And like once you're once you're happy with the end of every day and once you enjoy what you do, sure, I mean, that's that's absolutely brilliant. What is it they say? Find something that you like doing and you'll never work a day in your life. There you go. Yes. Okay, Michael Healy Ray, your no laughing matter moment in life. Well, you see, yeah, I, I don't know. I actually hate, I love talking about other people more than talking about myself. But I, I suppose the way these questions are structured, you have to start to tell your own stories. Um, unusually enough, I've had a couple of narrow escapes, right? But when I think back on them, um, if we put them all together, like there probably were no laughing matter. Um, but at the time, I had to start to work my way out of them. Like, do you know that person? Was it Rasputin? Do you know that they tried killing? Was it? Do you remember they 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 shot him and they poisoned him and they drowned him in a lake? Was that Rasputin or something? Jesus, I don't know. That's very heavy. Yeah. I wouldn't be reading it. It is. Well, I think I, I I'd be a touch like him now because the amount of close encounters that I've had. But when we had them all together, uh, he. There probably were no laughing matter. I had a very bad car accident one time, and I actually gave four and a half years on um, on two crutches, and I had to wear uh, you know braces, then leg braces, and all this sort of thing. You know, with like a plastic foot and a, a hip outside my own hip, and it, that created many unusual situations. Uh, for instance, with Woody Allen, one time uh, he was uh, visiting uh, Ken Mayer, and when I take a step my leg would like go click, 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 click and stop to the stand. And um, I was coming out of a place and there was a step coming out of it and I made my movement to walk. But, but there's no going back. You see, when we're doing this, you can't stop. You have to keep going forward. And didn't I go stepping out and next thing my leg went on top and remember now, so I had this big, very heavy thing and it landed on top of this small little man's foot and I had to put my two hands around him to catch onto him because otherwise I was going to fall. <laughs> and we were sort of rocking like this, going <laughs> forwards and backwards. And I was looking into his eyes 
and he had a big pair of glasses on him. And I was thinking, I know you from somewhere. Who are you? Who are you? And next thing it dawned to me, oh, yes, you're Woody Allen. Yes, hello. <laughs> and so I said, hello, Mr. Allen. You're very welcome. I'm very sorry about this, but I have a gammy leg. That's why I'm holding on to you. I'm not trying to kiss you or anything like that. And um, if you can remember at the time, you were probably too young for this, then. But um, do you remember he was married to Maya Farrow? Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah. And she had a daughter. Yeah, strange, strange. Yes, and um, he he went away with the daughter, we'll yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. they came to Ireland for a little bit of getty away time, but right. he didn't realise that I was going to stand on top of his foot and <laughs> sort of embrace him dearly to stop the two of us from falling down on the ground. But anyway, that was one of my incidents. Anyway, that was a car accident. Another time then I nearly choked to death at home. And uh, I, I, I really thought I had met my Waterloo that day. And then another oh, hang time... On, hang on, What did you choke on? Uh, I was eating or I had... I, I was after... I, what was it? I was... Bloody A sucky eating. sweet. No, no, no. I was eating the dinner, but I was rushing going to clinics. So I was on the phone. I was eating... I don't know, was it, was it rice and curry or something like that? Was it chicken? And then I had brown bread and I was trying to eat talk and rush at the same time. You, and were, next, you were horsing it into you, basically. Yes, exactly. And the next day, anyway, it just all stopped and became lodged. And Eileen, my wife, was there and I was sat to hear like this, you know, that was like, you know, I'm joking, like, but I couldn't say it. And um, anyway, it went on and on and my eyes were rolling back in my head. And anyway, it was, two neighbours came as well. Uh, and uh, there was a big operation and trying to get me freed, but like it went on a long time. And like when the tops of your fingers are going blue, that is bad. Your extremities are going then, and when your lips are going, there's only a very short length of time. And then once you, and you know the amount of people that choke in Ireland is actually frightening. And I'm going to tell you another useless statistic for you. Go on. Uh, and it unfortunately, it happens women an awful lot, right? Yeah, right. They're in a restaurant, they're very polite. They get a fit of choking. So where do they go? Bathroom. Bathroom. What do they do? Go in and they close the door in the little toilet closet. Fatal mistake. They die then inside that. The amount of people that die every year in Ireland from choking is frightening. And um, I've known of situations where people have died in restaurants where there was doctors, where the ambulance would have been there literally within minutes. And uh, sadly, like, if you get into real trouble, you can get into bad trouble choking, which I learned an awful lot about afterwards. So then we had a, a cow that decided to take a turn on me. And um, uh, I had a bit of a problem with her, whereby she got me down on the ground and was jumping up on top of me. And what a cow does, didn't just to educate you about cows, a cow doesn't kick you. People think, oh, you get a kick from a cow if you're down on the ground. Like a cow doesn't come up like and go kick you and saying, well, I'm going to get you. Now what they do is they put their leg up on top of you, right? And then they pull back, right? And like, believe me, if a cow does that, you know, there or even maybe down a bit further, which can be very <laughs> painful. And, and open the face, which can be very sore. Like that all happened to me that evening, which was a sort of a, a, a very tough time. And um, I survived that. And then going back to the time of, of being in the forestry with Dan Casey, one day a tree fell up on top of me. And uh, now it looked very, very bad from the distance to poor Dan, Dan because I got buried underneath the tree. But you see, the tree had actually hit me on the two shoulders and knocked me down to the ground. And whatever way the tree landed on top of me, it actually wasn't the full weight of the tree down on top of me. 
you know. But as far as Dan was concerned, I was dead underneath the tree, you know. So if I did all those things together, I definitely had more, you know, close encounters than maybe a lot of maybe more fortunate people. So I've had unusual things that have happened. And then, of course, we had a fire in my shop and uh, I had an awful operation in trying to stop the fire. And uh, as in nine fire extinguishers later, like, and uh, but I wasn't going to leave the place burning. So and uh, but in the course of doing that, I took in a lot of this old smoke and all that sort oh, of thing. Geez. And I finished up in hospital that time as well. So like I was like in nearly a small hospital myself at one stage with different unusual things happening to me. But hopefully that everything that could happen to me has happened to me at this stage. I hope. Cross my fingers and touch so, wood and all that. So no wonder politics is a doddle. Well, you know, that didn't go so, go so great either. I was inside the doll one day then, and something went wrong with me as well. And um, I finished up, uh, I, it was a farmer minister for health who was a doctor as well at the time, a very nice man, um, that uh, James Riley, that uh, had to come to my assistance because um, I had a, a bit of an encounter actually of all the flipping places to have it inside the doll chamber, which is not a good place to decide to, you know, conk, and um, but that was to do with um, you know one of these irregular things that happen where things skip a beat, and uh, it led to an awful amount of difficulties at the time. So, uh, but hopefully that I'll be on a clear stretch now between here and the final furlong. Please God, <laughs> I hope. Yeah. Holy mother, that's nice to know. Though he came to your aid in the do- all is fair in love and 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 uh, and doll mishaps. Well, it is, yeah, exactly, yeah, uh, yeah ex- and the clown caller, fair news to him at the time, I finished up being carried into his office uh, to be sort of um, brought around, and um, and to all of the very nice people who work in the doll, the ushers and all those people that are so kind, and they were all really brilliant on the day, and um, and again, of course, uh, the ambulance people, you know, like I say, for a while I could have done with my own ambulance going around after me, I could have saved them a lot of time. <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay, right. Michael Healy Ray, the person you always laugh with. Well, you see, it's very wrong to pick anybody above anybody else. But you see, when you ask the question, to name an individual, the person that would sort of come to my mind would be Kevin, my son, because Kevin is a sort of a funny type of a person. He's one of those people, he actually needn't open his mouth. If you start to look at him, you would be inclined <laughs> to laugh. And if you'll ever meet him, you'll know what I mean. But I'll give you an example of things, even from when he was very small, he was always sort of funny. There was a very nice lady nearby here who used to take care of Kevin. And um, now she won't mind me naming her and her late husband, who was a very nice man. Uh, she was Nelly, Nelly Gill. So Nelly's husband was Tom. Now, Kevin idolized Tom and everything was Tom Gill said, Tom Gill does. Like even the egg that he would eat in the morning, he used to call it a Tom Gill egg because he'd have to take the top off it, put a bit of butter and a little bit of salt, mix it up a little bit. And that was a Tom Gill egg. You know? <laughs> so he used to watch Tom doing everything. So he used to be watching Tom shaving and Tom would mix up his, his, his shaving form and he'd shave very diligently and he'd put his aftershave and everything. And Kevin used to be watching this. So one day anyway, Kevin arrived into the kitchen to Nelly and he said, Nelly, he said, I was shaving. So, of course, Nelly said, oh, you were a great boy. You sure what are you talking about? Oh, no, I was shaving. I, I did Tom Gill's shaving. 
So she looked at him and next thing, horror of horrors, she looked at him. What was he missing? An eyebrow, because he was after <laughs> going away and shaving off one of his eyebrows. And he thought this was brilliant. So he had just shaved the eyebrow off. And here he was explaining to Nelly and he was after even going to the detail of getting the little bit of after shaving, dabby it here, like to make himself nice and fresh, like Tom Gill, after shaving. And uh, there was poor Nelly, nearly fit to have a heart attack at this whole situation of the child after going away and shaving himself. And um, But we all obviously saw the funny side of it. And it was just one of these funny things which he still does to this day, sort of making everybody laugh, which is a great ability in any person. <laughs> what about, so you're a, you're a dad of five, yes? Yes. Is that busy or was it busy or is your job done? Well, you see, no, I wouldn't ever go trying to make myself out to be something that I'm not. Um, you see, I wouldn't have been around an awful lot because of work commitments and everything. So I, I, I wouldn't profess to be one of these people that was there, you know, do, do, you know doing battles and, and all that sort of thing. And because I just wasn't there, you know, uh, I, I would like to think I was there at certain times when I had to be there. But uh, being diligent about those type of things, I wouldn't have been because it is very hard to be in two places at the same time. In 1997, my father had got elected to Dalairn. I was, we'll say, doing the constituency work for him and combing County Kerry in the way we like doing it. It was a big onus of responsibility, organising his clinics, covering for him at his clinics when he wasn't able to do them. By, by being in Dublin, representing him at different meetings, at functions, at all that sort of thing. Uh, I, let's put it this way. I put that ahead of everything else. And I would never deny that. I'd never try to say, oh, well, you know, I, I had a, a balance. I didn't. The balance was it was 100% the politics and everything else then was second. And like I say, the, we'll say protecting my father's back for those years. And remember, I was a county councillor at the time and I was deeply um, obsessed with ensuring that I would grow that council seat and protect it and make sure that nobody took it off me and uh, minding the constituents and representing them in a way that I felt that they deserved to be represented and maybe that in my opinion they hadn't been represented before. I was obsessed with doing that. And uh, so with regard to being, uh, we'll call it, but question mark, good father, that would have been second to everything. What would you say the people of Kerry mean to the Healy Ray family and vice versa? Well, you see, you must look at it this way. We call it the Healy Rays that are elected to the different positions that they're in. They would be absolutely nowhere. They would not have any position if it wasn't for the people entrusting them. So the way I'd look at it is the people of Kerry are here and the Healy Rays are here because we are the servants to the people in County Kerry that elect us. And like the best way I could describe it is being blunt about it. They own us in that you're there to assist them, to advise them, to guide them, to work for them in the best way you can. Sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong, but once you always try, and once you're always there to be a listening ear and to give advice and to answer your phone, the one thing that I don't like in life is people who think it's a good idea to have a phone and then not answer it. Now, I know you can't answer it all the time, but you get back to every single solitary person that rings you. If you don't do that, and if you're an elected politician, and if you think, 
Well, oh, I don't know that number. Like the only person I don't answer because, sorry, that I don't get back to is the no caller ID because if I miss them, I can't bring them back. So, but everyone else that rings, if I can't answer them, I will ring them back. But the only person I can't get back to is the no caller ID. But like I know politicians, like they leave their phone ring away and they don't even look at it. And like, I think to myself, my God, that's somebody that, you know, might need help and might need assistance. And like, it's like, it's not, it's like not turning up to work, not to answer your phone. Like, as far as I'm concerned, people often say to me, oh, thanks for getting back to me. Or thanks. Like my, my, I, I might don't even look at it that way. The way I look at it is, oh, sure. Like I'm doing my job. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm there to, to represent you and to listen to you and to work for you. So not to do so would be like not do your job properly. So I don't understand how other politicians feel that it's their right to uh, monitor their calls and oh, I'll answer this person and I won't answer that person because I don't know their number. Sure, Jesus, how can you know everybody's number? You, you, your, your job is to answer. So that's- I spoke, I, I spoke to my dad this morning and he, he's a Claremont, by the way, but he, he knew that I was going to be talking to you and I said, any last minute things you want to, you know, throw my way before I talk to Michael? He said the one thing, story always, that always stands out to him was it was about your dad, Jackie, when he mm. first got a mobile phone. Was that a big story at the time? Well, you see, it's been exaggerated and told, told different <laughs> ways. Like, I'll tell you the truth of what happened. And this is like, I've heard it being put every other type of way, but this is exactly what happened. Um, for the election in 97, we had mobile phones, but it was our first time having them. Like we mightn't have had a mobile phone maybe with six months, maybe 12 months maximum before that. So maybe 96, we got them. So we were only getting used to them. And uh, the election was on and I needed my father for something and I rang him. And of course, the poor man was he, he was distracted. He was going to a house or whatever, canvassing. And, and uh, but when I rang him, he said, hello. And I said, hello. Is that who Michael? I said, it is, yes. And I said, I wanted for something. And next thing he stopped and he said, God. and he was like, he was, how, how did you know where I was? Do you see? And next thing I started laughing. And next thing he, he realized it. And he said, Asher, God damn it. Yes, 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 yes. What do you want me for now? And you see, he was distracted then because he knew the mistake he was after making himself. <laughs> but like, that is the truth. That is what happened. He did say to me, ah, and how did you know what I was? But I mean, people <laughs> people nowadays couldn't say, like they'd say, how could a person come out with that statement? But if we were adult, if we were busy, and if, totally. we, were, if, and if we weren't used to having this phone <laughs> in your pocket that always knew where you were and that it would ring with you. Like, remember up until that, we, like we thought we were on Dallas or something long ago when we got a cardless phone in the house and when we could walk around the house. Like, we thought, we were like JRUing, like, you know, you could go upstairs. You could even go a small little bit outside the door. And like <laughs> the novelty of being six, six feet outside the door of the house and uh, and not having this wire coming after you. I'm telling you, we thought we were like South Park at the time. And um, <laughs> like, that's for anybody that can remember what a cardless phone was. But sure, then when we got the mobiles, for God's sake, we didn't know whether we were coming or going. But it, 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 but it did bring confusion <laughs> as well, which is... Oh, brilliant. I'm glad you could set the record straight anyway. It did happen and it was you he was on the phone to. I love it. Yes, that is what happened, yes. Okay, Michael, if laughter... No, actually, sorry. A time when you had the last laugh. Oh, yes. Um, Do you know, yeah, I... uh... 
that's one where I would have a hundred of them, but you know, I suppose the the one that would jump out at me would have been um, a, a, an unusual thing again. Uh, this is like through admissions. Uh, I stole a tractor, right? Now, the reason I stole the tractor, I had great justification in stealing the tractor. Um, I, I did a job for a person and they didn't pay. Now, they're all gone out of the world now, so I can't be sued. And I can't be sued anyway because it's the truth. I actually think I wrote about this in a, in a book. Um, I, I, I did the job and I, I was getting on to the person and saying, you know, any chance of getting paid there, like, you know, it would be great, like. Yeah. And uh, there was nothing happening anyway. And after about a year, I knew I wasn't going to get anything. So I knew the person's movements. So I, I uh, it was like a partner in crime, but it was like Bonnie and Clyde. My mother was the getaway driver. My mother drove me to where the, the tractor was, which was at his house. So I sat up on the tractor, started it, and headed for home. Um, and when I uh, got home with it, I secured it safely. And the first port of call was I rang the local guard station. And I told the guards, you know, I'm after stealing this tractor. So a very nice guard who unfortunately has gone from the world too now. And he was a great man. And he said, um, oh God, he said, and tell me why did you do this? So I told him and I told him the truth. I said, the man owes me money with 12 months. I said, and I said, I went and I took the tractor and I said, you know, I just wanted you to know the truth in case he goes complaining about me because I'm going to ring him now in case he thinks it's anyone else. I'm going to ring him tonight and tell him I have his tractor. So he said, uh, all right. He said, uh, I can see nothing wrong with this, he said. Do you see? And he said, I hope he actually rings me. Do you see? So I rang the man that night and I said, do you know the way there? I said, I did that job for you. And he was real cool with me on the phone. And of course, he thought I was going to say, I'm looking for the money. I said, well, do you know, I don't want the money now anymore. Oh, how do you mean? He said, I said, I don't want the money. Because I said, do you know that nice tractor of yours? Yes, he said. Well, I said, it's not yours anymore. I said, it's mine now. And I said, in case you're looking for it, it's not where you think it is. Because I said, I have it, right? And I said, I'm keeping it. And I said, if you want to come to me sometime and give me the money that you owe me. But I said, I actually like the tractor. And I hope now that you don't come with the money because I don't think I'll take it now, right? But I said, we'll see if we do decide to come. But I said, I, I'd have to think long and hard about it before I'd give you back the tractor. And then I said, and by the way, don't waste your time ringing the guards because I'm already after talking to them. And I said, they know what you are, who you are, and what you did to me. And I said, you know, you can be sucking on that now. And uh, when I was going off the phone, I had a right good laugh to myself. And I thought, well, that fixes that bastard now and ever once and for all. Do you know? And that was the finish of him. So I had the last laugh. So, gee, so he never came up with the money and you never gave no, the tractor back? I never gave him back his tractor, not at all. And you know, it was a great tractor. I knocked great service out of it. I was delighted he didn't pay me. True story. <laughs> Do you still have the tractor? No, I traded it in a few years later because I wanted to upgrade and I traded it in for a better model. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Love it. Yes. Okay, Michael Healy Ray, if laughter wasn't the best medicine, what would be? Well, do you know the way we're living in such a politically correct world now? And do you know, especially with all the pubs closed and you get people poo-pooing about drink and all this sort of thing. Like, to answer that question, Drink, alcoholic drink. Now, why would I say that? 
because some of the nicest times that people had and we're gone so goddamn politically correct that if a politician comes out and says well do you know medicine drink drink medicine you know drink is fine too there is nothing in the world wrong with drink and i see people even on the television there at night and like they they be sticking their noses up on current affairs programs and things i've seen people and they're smelling alcoholic drink and they're turning their noses up and it's as if there's something wrong with it like there's nothing in the world wrong with alcohol and uh, and this is coming out from a person who hasn't had a drink with um, over three years, but I'm not counting like um, <laughs> three years and a couple of weeks and a few days and a few hours, but without an alcoholic drink. But I'm managing away fine. But like I have great respect for alcohol and I like seeing people having alcohol, obviously in moderation. And the company and the stories and the enjoyment that they have. And like some of the nicest, funniest times that I've ever had would have been inside in pubs. And like I have favorite pubs, obviously, our own pub, Healy Ray's pub in Kilgarvan. But then inside in Khmer, there's places and they know themselves, you know, aiming to his pub inside in Khmer, uh, Connors Bar, the Atlantic, the Fault in Killarney. I have all these different places, you know, Larkins in Milltown, places that I like going to. And Jory B. Hins above and list all, all these d- different places that are like and around the Ring of Kerry pubs that I've been going to for years. And uh, when you go in the door, it's like, oh God, I'm so delighted I'm here. And uh, even if you're not having a drink, you can meet the people who are having a drink and people loosen up a little bit, bit and they tell funny stories and they recount. And sure, what work is doing inside in pubs is frightening. Like there's more work done inside in pubs than in any building site or in any farm in the country because everybody's explaining about, well, the time I did such a thing. And sure, you enjoy all that. And you hear great stories inside in pubs. And um, I mean, even going to Listoon Varna there, Myself and my wife and a few of our friends, uh, we'd always go to Listoon Varna and uh, I sure like, I'd really enjoy that. And I've been in Listoon Varna when I was having a drink myself and I've been there when I wasn't drinking. So I, I, I've seen it from both sides. I actually think it's better when you are drinking, but that's a different story. <laughs> but uh, but like places like that are great. And th- that's what, you know, that's what enjoyment is all about. And there is nothing in the world wrong with having drink. And I think when pubs open up again, I'd love to see people get back into the habit of going and having a drink, whether it's in the evening or on a Sunday afternoon or just at a time when they want to have a bit of a break for themselves. There is nothing in the world wrong with drinking nothing well if that's your answer and if that's how you feel about it is it too personal to ask you why you haven't had a drop in over three years well i suppose no it's not i i do know it's i suppose it's to do with politics really in that um you see i'm always out late at night and very early in the morning again yeah. And uh, I would take the responsibility, obviously, of not having a drink and driving. I would take that very seriously. And um, like what I would love to think of is that I might live long enough that the time might come that I mightn't be in politics and that if I was older and that I could go away of a Sunday afternoon with a couple of newspapers and go into a pub and sit down and talk with people and have a drink, I, I think that would be a lovely thing to do in the future. But because of what I'm doing and the intensity of it, and like, like we spoke earlier on about the phone, you always have to be presentable on the phone and you have to be able to think logically and sensibly. 
and uh, it's just at this point in my life uh, there isn't uh, the room for alcohol at this time but but let's put it this way i hope i live long enough to make up for it so you're basically you're too old to be burning the candle at both ends is what you're trying to say well, what I'm saying is it's not the right thing to do at this time. I don't think so. And like I say, when you're, when you're, when you're there to serve the people, you know, having alcohol in the middle of it, even in moderation, I don't think it's suitable. Like maybe it might suit other people, but like not me, not at this time, you know. Yeah. And like I'm three years into it. I might do another seven years then and then I might have a drink again. So I'll, I, jo- I, I'll join you. I'll put it in the diary for seven years time. Exactly. <laughs> okay, you ready for your quick fire round, Michael Healy Ray? Yes. Okay, the actor you always laugh at. Well, that's very easy. Uh, John Cleese, Faulty Towers, he would be one because, again, he's a bit like Mike Kevin. You'd look at him and, and he'd make you make you laugh. And um, sure, all those Faulty Towers, you'd swear to God that Faulty Towers, that there was about 5,000 episodes and sure there was only something like 15 or 16 <laughs> episodes or something. It was ridiculously small. And, you know, we all remember Manuel and, uh, you know, oh, they were just, just so funny. So I think him, yes. Okay, the actress you always laugh at. Well, you see, you'd have a few of those. And now, this is where it gets a bit confusing. Uh, Brendan O'Carroll, a.k.a. Mrs. Brown, like <laughs> Mrs. Brown is, is Brent, but can you call Mrs. Brown an actress? I don't know. Mrs. Bouquet, the lady of the house. And, of course, probably the funniest of all, uh, Mrs. Doyle. Okay, the movie that makes you laugh out loud. Um, well, I suppose <sighs> simple films like were very, very funny if we go back. Uh, Police Academy, all those films were very good. And if you can remember Aeroplane, do you remember Aeroplane and Aeroplane, the sequel and all that? And you see, again, it was that the jokes that were in it were so simplistic. It was like the day, you know, the, the plane was going along the sky and the pilot, the air hostess came up and she said, uh, Captain, Captain, there's a, a, a passenger, very, very sick. Uh, we have to get him to a hospital as quick as possible. And uh, the captain said, what is it? What is it? And she looked at him and she said, it's a big white building with patients in it, but that's not important now. You know, <laughs> These stupid, simple things, but they were very, very fu- funny if you'd laugh at them for their sheer stupidity. <laughs> Okay, the comedian that makes you laugh out loud, Michael. Well, Brendan Grace was um, a great character who I really liked an awful lot. I actually spoke to him on on the phone on the day that he uh, died. Uh, I was speaking to him that morning and I definitely wasn't expecting him to die that day. I knew he was quite ill and I had been in touch with his family and everything. And um, uh, he entertained people in a way that I thought was so special and nice because he didn't have to use bad language. He didn't have to be coarse. You could be inside with your mother or your grandmother or the parish priest or a nun watching him and listening to him and there'd be nothing wrong or children could go to his shows. He he was great. And one thing he did, he played to the biggest of audiences and then he played to the smallest of audiences. He took no notices in the world of going down to Waterville or into Kinmare, into a small venue maybe and entertaining 50 or 100 people. And uh, I was at his funeral. And if this isn't the wrong thing to say... Uh, I totally enjoyed his funeral. Oh. And now I mean that in the nicest possible way because the speeches that his family made, uh, the words that they used, um, uh, the way the, the priest, he was so nice. 
um, gave such a great account of his life and times. And uh, I'll never forget what he said at the very beginning of it. He said, if anybody's in a hurry, leave now. <laughs> and I think two and a half hours later, we were still there. And it was absolutely uh, very enjoyable um, because it was like a celebration of his life. Yeah. And uh, that was really great. And of course, Tommy Tiernan then is a very intelligent, deeply intelligent and obviously very funny person as well. But look, there's so many, I could go on and on and on and on. But Irish people have produced great comedians and great entertainers of all types over the years. Okay, and finally, Michael Healy Ray, your best or worst joke? Oh, God almighty. Um, I don't know. Again, you know, the simple things, and I actually think this was a Brendan Grace joke, but some of his jokes were so nice in their simplicity. Two twins um, from a small little house, and they're going to the same school, which wasn't very far away, and... Uh, staying in the same bed, in the same room, in the same house. And one morning they were very late for school. And uh, so one of the twins walked in and the teacher said to him, where were you? Why were you late? And the little boy, he looked at the teacher and he said, well, I, 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 I had to have my breakfast and, and, and I'm late. And uh, I had a boiled egg and I, I'm late. I'm sorry. So next thing, maybe 10 minutes later, the other half twin arrived in 10 minutes later and the teacher said to him, why are, why are you late? Your brother is here for 10 minutes. And and what, and um, next thing he said, well, I was I was having my breakfast. But he said, you're 10 minutes later than you're... And next thing the young boy looked at the teacher, did I have a spoon, did I? <laughs> so in other words, there was only one spoon in the house. Did I have a spoon, did I? <laughs> so he had to wait his turn for the spoon to eat my leg. So again, simple jokes. Simple, simple. 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 Keep it simple. Michael Healy Ray, I know you're an extremely busy man. I know your phone is hopping and the fact that you even left it in the other room says a lot and means a lot to me that you, you really threw yourself into this. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for sharing the laughs of your life. No, it's good crack. And thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate it very much. I know you could pick lots of people, so I'm very glad you picked me. I appreciate that. And tell your father I said hello. I have one thing to say about people from Clare. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Um, Be careful now. When I went to Palestine, a lot of the students that I don't know would have been with. They were from Clare and uh, they were awful nice people. And what I liked about the Clare people, very down to earth, very like Kerry people, no nonsense, what you saw is what you got. And uh, I, made I made lifelong friends with many of them. So I like the people from Clare. Well, he likes the people from Kerry, I think. I'll ask him, I'll check up after this. Yeah, thank you <laughs> very much, Dylan. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Laughs of Your Life podcast with Michael Healy Ray. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, review and all those other things. Lots of great guests to look forward to this season. So stay tuned. This podcast is recorded with Collaborative Studios and is brought to you by Aussie Hair. Great hair. No worries. No worries.